A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. I've been fascinated with Perkbox. Their mission is to help employees live better in life and in work. And the way they've set about doing that is by creating a platform with 200 exclusive employee benefits. And these are across store discounts, healthcare, recognition incentives. There's a whole array of different things. It was impressive just the vastness of what they offer. Perkbox is designed to give everyone everything they need to perform at work, improving motivation, productivity and staff retention. Perkbox helps employees live better in life and in work. Find out more, go to perkbox.com. I try everything to be as successful as possible. I live 100% for the boys, with the boys, what we do for the club and all that stuff. And I think that's leadership. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Specifically, how can any of us improve the work culture in our jobs? How can we make our daily employment feel less like a chore and feel more rewarding? Each episode, we look inside the evidence behind better working, delving into psychology, neuroscience and research that tries to understand how we can activate our motivation for our jobs. Over the course of the last three years, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat has never really covered sport. It's often a tricky one to make direct parallels with our rather more mundane jobs. But today you should see two episodes drop into your feed with a new non-sport episode next. Alongside this episode about Jurgen Klopp's team culture is an episode about the Barcelona approach to team culture based on a long discussion with Damien Hughes, author of The Barcelona Way. Damien also features heavily in this episode. Across both episodes, you're going to hear lots of evidence of how the best operators in sport make work better. As ever, the best way to stay connected with Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. There's almost 500 five-star reviews there, so feel free to rate us at the same time. You'll find episodes, transcripts, lots of other good stuff on the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. During the course of the discussion today, I'll mention a number of articles and all of those articles are listed in the show notes on your podcast app, or you can also go to the, the Klopp page on the website. Jürgen Klopp finished last football season on top of the world while his Liverpool side missed out on winning the English Premier League finishing a single point behind champions Manchester City Liverpool did manage to win the most coveted cup in club football the Champions League trophy Klopp himself is a rare breed a man whose fame and force of character has made him transcend the sport of football 
That's people who don't even have an interest in the sport, definitely in the UK and probably even further astray. And they'll have an opinion on Klopp, almost certainly a positive one. So why is he so popular? It's clear that he emanates a sense that he's loving life. Here he is seconds after the final whistle in Madrid. If you win a German trophy, you get beer poured over your head. We've had none of that yet, have we? I don't know. And you're, I thought I was when I win um, 20 minutes after the game, already half pissed, but I, I, I didn't even get the water. No, sorry. Go and have a drink. <laughs> what are the secrets of his success? Are there any lessons we can learn about the wider world of work, about motivation, about making our own teams more effective? In this episode, you're going to hear from Klopp and other commentators about what might explain the Jurgen Klopp effect. (laughs) Firstly, who is Jurgen Klopp? Klopp's first break into coaching came at Mainz, the club he played at for the 11 years of his professional career. It was here that Klopp learned the system that would become his clear plan that would underpin his whole managerial career, the Gengen Press. A collective system of defending that... So the casual eye looks like hounding every opposition player with the ball to win it back and then a fiery gallop towards the goal. Klopp's manager at Mainz was Wolfgang Frank, a man credited with introducing the 4-4-2 to German football. Frank is often cited by Klopp as his biggest inspiration. Peter Krawwitz, Klopp's assistant at Anfield, explained the significance of Frank's work. Wolfgang Frank had an idea of football which was something like a revolution in Germany, based on a style of pressing and defending. It was new in Germany to play in a back four and to play this way. Mainz was the first to do it and the success was unbelievable. Frank was a very important person for all of us when he came to Mainz. When Frank was forced to step down in 2001, the club struggled to find anyone who understood the Gengen press and reluctantly asked Klopp to manage them until the end of the season. He was under clear instructions that he couldn't do the role as player-manager, so he retired from his playing career. Klopp had spent years playing in this system, heretical to German conventional wisdom, of having a back four without a sweeper, and the concept of defending narrowly in certain areas of the pitch was second nature to him. came less easily to those who understood more conventional German tactics. The book Bring the Noise by Raphael Honigstein reports that Klopp had loved how everyone had to go where the ball was, The aim was to create numerical superiority to win the ball and then sprawl out like a fist that opens. At Mainz, he built on Wolfgang Frank's blueprint, taking the team first to promotion and then scoring two 11th place finishes in the Bundesliga. For his first season in the Bundesliga, Mainz had the smallest budget and the smallest stadium in the league. But after two 11th finishes, he weathered relegation in his third season. He took it well. Klopp was quoted as saying, people in the club have reacted in a classy manner. Here, people will never be idiots for losing a game. It was his off-field activities that probably gave him his next break. His larger-than-life punditry at the 2006 World Cup on German TV channel ZDF made him a beloved household name. Snobbery might have questioned how a second-division coach could credibly talk about international football, but his entertaining no-nonsense communication quickly won fans on a show with a vast nationwide audience. It was clear he was a supreme communicator. Here he is years later telling German publication DW Kickoff why this is his main skill. <laughs> now I have another skill and that's and again pure luck. Um, I've, I can I can uh, how we say <laughs> so I can speak like a waterfall. So and don't I'm not worrying about what people think. That's true. After seven years managing Mainz, his fame helped propel him to manage at Bundesliga club Dortmund. It was at Dortmund that Cobb started fine tuning his approach. He instructed his players to foster their guile a word that approximately translates as being horny. 
Explaining this, Cop told a magazine, the language I use is important. I need to get through to my players. I don't use guile to come across as young or cool. I simply don't have a better word to describe something I happen to find exorbitantly beautiful. It was at Dortmund that Cop realised the importance of culture and creating his vision. The Dortmund team spent a lot of time building sync both in person and notably, he encouraged them to connect with each other at night on their games consoles. Here's Klopp talking about the culture he likes to create within teams. See, I always only thought about in which, what kind of group I want to be part of. So now I'm in charge, so I can create this kind of spirit. So that's what I do. I want to feel comfortable in the group, I, actually, with my players. I want to, I'm not a selfish person, but that I'm that close with my players is a bit selfish, to be honest, because I like that, to be that close with players. I described it, I think, one time, like, I'm, I'm their friend, but I'm not the best friend of my players, so I cannot do what they want, always. In the higher-pressure environment at Dortmund, Klopp realised the value of instructing his teams to live in the moment. His philosophy was about never focusing on the end-of-season goals, just on the next game. Training had a fixed pattern, being competitive and, importantly, incredibly focused on fun. Klopp achieved a rare thing leaving his first two clubs as a beloved legend. Few managers leave clubs as fan favourites, but winning back-to-back Bundesliga titles and getting the club to the Champions League final meant that Klopp was seen to have exceeded all expectations at Dortmund. When Klopp was approached to be Liverpool manager, he was on a year's break. At the press conference unveiling him, he famously won people over by contrasting his own style to the last decade's bombast of figures like Mourinho. Mourinho had described himself as the special one when he was unveiled. Klopp presented himself as something far more humble. So I'm a totally normal guy. Um, I'm the normal one, maybe, if you want this. <laughs> so now, after three years at Liverpool, Klopp has moved the club on to winning the Champions League and created the foundations for more success to come. Let's look now at the cultural secrets of Jurgen Klopp. The Klopper story goes to the heart of our fascination with work culture. Can one workplace do better than another because their culture is better? A lot of managers focus on the tactics of a game or, I guess in business, that would be the strategy of the business. But are they missing something important by not thinking of how they make people feel? Is there a secret to Jurgen Klopp's winning culture at Liverpool? And what can any of us apply of it to our own workplaces? Of course, the allure of the story of football managers is somehow someone who can get a 10 out of 10 result from a 6 out of 10 team. We're going to look at the four secrets of Jurgen Klopp's style of cultural management. While it can look like a culture built on love and adrenaline, it's far more than that. The pillars of Liverpool's success are 1. Using the data 2. Having a clear plan 3. Being relentlessly inclusive and 4. Creating psychological safety. Let's start with the least glamorous of those, data. Whether we like it or not, data plays a big part in the outcome of sport. In their book, Soconomics, Simon Cooper and his co-author Stefan Zivzmansky remind us that in fact most of what happens in football is entirely predictable based on the data. At the highest level, Brazil's population is bigger than Germany's. Germany's population is bigger than England's. Ergo, by rights, Brazil, Germany, England is the likely order of their standings over time. The other thing that Simon Cooper and Stefan Zizmanski tell us is that despite the romance that we bring to these stories, usually managers matter very little to the success of a club. Probably the football fairy story of our lifetimes will be Leicester City under Claudio Ranieri, winning the Premier League in 2016. 
But Cooper and Zizmanski say that Ranieri's firing two-thirds into the following season, with only five wins on the board, was the reversion to the statistical mean. To their mind, freak successes like that are just statistical aberrations against the norm. According to Soconomics, what determines success is principally the wage bill of clubs. There's a very strong correlation between the highest wage bill and the biggest success. Of course, where any statistical analysis falls down is taking a single year. The most recent wage bills that have been published are for 2017-2018. The biggest wage bill that year was Manchester United, with £296 million. Liverpool was second, about £30 million behind, and £264 million. And Manchester City were just marginally behind them, and £260 million. That season, just to remind you, the league finished... Manchester City, Manchester United, one and two. And there's why a fascination with this data is never easy. We get lost in a mess of anecdote, exceptions and narrative fallacy. This is where Liverpool's approach to data is a little different. They aim to use data to buck the trend. There are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. You may well have seen or watched Moneyball, which was about Billy Bean at baseball's Oakland A's breaking the golden rule that the team with the most money achieves the best results by the use of data. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. One fascinating nuance about soccer is that the average football game has fewer than three goals. It means that luck can play a much bigger part in the outcome of matches, far more so than in other sports. And it also means that trends in data can sometimes be more opaque than in other games. In a wonderful article in the New York Times this May, the writer Bruce Schoenfeld went behind the scenes meeting the Liverpool FC Director of Research, Ian Graham. There can't be many premiership clubs who employ a doctor of theoretical physics to run their mathematical modelling, but Liverpool are far more data-driven than other clubs. If you listen to the other football episode of Eat Sleep Work Repeat that comes alongside this, you'll hear management professor Damien Hughes describe the culture at Liverpool as bureaucratic. That might seem like a surprise. How could this vibrant, lively place be seen as bureaucratic? Maybe it's just a question of wording. But this is a culture that's underpinned by the work that goes on in the back office. Liverpool's owners, the Fenway Group, were also responsible for bringing the same mathematical rigours to baseball. And their team, the Boston Red Sox, were last year's winners of the World Series. It's fair to say to an outside eye, this approach hasn't always won praise, especially when Liverpool extended their seasons without winning anything. The Irish independent newspaper spoke for many when it said Jurgen Klopp must be wary of the owner's reliance on analytics to assess players. But Klopp is the first to admit his own hiring was down to the analysis done by the Liverpool mathematicians. He was quoted in the article in the New York Times as having observed the department there in the back of the building. They're the reason I'm here. As well as seeking out Klopp, Ian Graham's data was also the reason why Liverpool signed Mo Salah who was brought in from playing in Italy after he'd previously weathered a brief and relatively unsuccessful spell in the Premiership at Chelsea. Salah repaid the mathematician's model by breaking the Premier League record, scoring 32 times in the 2017-2018 season. While a committee of people signs off on the final contracts, it's the backroom data that brings every single signing to the table. Two, a clear plan. Secondly, the critical factor for Liverpool is the fact they have a clear plan to the way they play. Klopp loves entertaining attacking football, but it's built on the foundations of the Gengen press, the counter-press, a strong defensive organisation behind everything they do. 
Klopp has previously described this combination as heavy metal football. He was quoted as saying that the tic-a-tac-a possession of clubs like Barcelona wasn't for him. He said, It's not my sport. I don't like winning with 80% possession. Sorry, that's not enough for me. Fighting football, not serenity football. That's what I like. Here's management professor Damien Hughes. I think Klopp, I think what's been interesting with him was he came with this idea of what he called heavy metal football, which is about playing football uh, with like a fury of pressing and chasing and making life incredibly difficult for opponents. So I think he's taken that style of football that he had in Germany. So he said that he needed lots of young, energetic, impressionable footballers to do that. It starts at a high energy. So Barcelona's is about retaining possession. And when they lose it, they press with high energy. The Dortmund approach is they just press with high energy right from the very off. It's not just about possession. It's about forcing the opposition into mistakes as much as that. So I think he came with that idea of that blueprint of how he, how he likes his teams to play. So I think he's introduced some of that into Liverpool. But he came into a culture where they have a transfer committee. So they have six people that make decisions as to who they recruit. Their criteria is, is using the Billy Bean Moneyball philosophy. So they call it Sabernomics. I think what Klopp has done though is he, he's come in as been like the most credible member of that committee. He's very quickly been able to remove players from the club that don't sign up to the philosophy. Over his first season and a half, Klopp slowly evolved their formation to a core back four, but with a far more fluid front six. After Hull City were thrashed 5-1 by Liverpool at Anfield, Curtis Davies tried to explain how it felt to defend against Klopp's men. They're a side which literally plays with Henderson and the two centre-halves at the back, and the rest can go wherever they want. That is not an ill-disciplined thing, that is organised. That's what causes all the problems. The interchanging, the good football, the passing. And this is critical. Klopp, for all the talk of energy and fun, is a coach with a clear plan. It's said that Klopp routinely meets any player before he signs them. To that meeting, he brings two questions. Do you like to train? And do you like to run? Two very basic questions, but an illustration that you want someone who will fit in the heavy metal approach. It's clear Klopp knows that once a game begins, it is simplicity that helps players get through. He knows that in front of 30, 40, 50,000 fans, complex tactical changes are lost on players. Here he is explaining that during the game, it's less about giving instructions and it's more about giving energy. Forgive the background noise on this clip. Information you're given before the game in halftime, proper information. So what do we have to change? stuff? Like it's not easy during a game just to say, come on, you do this and you pass there and then you move around and then you're overlapping, underlapping, whatever. It's not that easy. Got distance, crowd, and all that stuff. So, but I see myself as kind of the extra tank of the players. When when a few gets a little less and less and less, then there's somebody who kicks your ass. His cop explaining why his simple heavy metal approach is about being high tempo and exciting. He's learned that a combination of high energy and a motivated partisan crowd seems to create a spectacle that is both entertaining and befuddling for the opposition. I watched so many matches in my life. There are some boring games, and then I, I, I sleep. And I, I'm, I, it's so boring, I think, oh, why they meet each other and make this? 20, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people in a stadium and it's a boring game, it's not okay. So that's what we, what we want to see. We want to enjoy our, our own game. 
This use of energy is why some around Klopp suggest that he's not always a strategic mastermind. Pepsin Linders, who returned to Liverpool to become Klopp's assistant after a brief spell as a manager in his own right, suggests the Reds' boss places more importance on what happens off the field rather than specific details of a plan. Linders told the Dutch newspaper De Volksrant, quote, Jürgen creates a family. We always say 30% tactics, 70% team building. Here's star defender Virgil van Dijk explaining what that approach feels like firsthand. I think everyone is ready to come in, ready to do the job. Everyone knows what they have to do if they play on a certain position. Um, I think the key to us playing is um, do it all together. We attack together, we defend together. If, if the ball is on one position of the, on the pitch, then we make sure that we're going to fight for the ball all together. It doesn't really matter if you're a left back or a midfield or well else. We try to put them under pressure and put them, make the options they got limited. It's this simplicity of approach that might earn cops from critics. Here's football writer Jonathan Wilson. I don't think anybody's actually said this on the record, but I've certainly know of one coach who definitely is in that pantheon who's very, very sceptical about him, who sees him as a motivator and nothing more. And I think within coaching circles, there is a certain scepticism about him that they feel he's maybe not quite precise enough. Clearly, motivation is a huge part of what he does. But I think there is a sense, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but I think there is a sense that he's not quite as sophisticated as a Guardiola, as a Mourinho. Which, which coach in the world has beaten Guardiola the most often? Jurgen Klopp. So he's got something. I, but I thought it was really obvious when you saw United play Liverpool that Van Hal's football felt old-fashioned. It felt like this was something from, from the 90s or maybe a little bit after that. Whereas Klopp's football felt very new, very very vigorous, very percussive. I think there can at times be a sense with Guardiola his football is a little bit bloodless, a little bit too cerebral. Whereas Klopp's is very much football of the heart. Klopp himself is dismissive of him having any strategic mastermind. Gary Lineker for BT Sport asked him what his management philosophy was. Lively. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's not the smartest way, I know. Having memorable games in a row, that's my first target, that the people really want to see the next game. You leave the stage when you want to see the next game. You can't wait for the next game. That's what football should be. And if you can do this very often, then you will be successful 100%. But maybe it's the simplicity of the plan that's the critical element here. As Klopp says himself, it is everyone's job to defend and then they can have fun when they attack. In a world where sometimes we can all find ourselves overcomplicating things, this honesty is actually refreshing. So I guess it raises the question of whether enthusiasm can be a secret weapon. Can it unlock something that management psychologists call discretionary effort? Discretionary effort is bang in the middle of the big debate about worker engagement. Are workers or players who feel more connected to the boss and the team's purpose more likely to do more and work harder? There's been lots of surveys that set out to prove this. And it certainly can work the other way. One of the challenges of work is that it's often hard to tell who's pulling their weight. A French professor, Max Ringelmann, discovered this in a novel experiment. Volunteers were first asked to pull on a rope with all their strength. Then they were signed up to a tug of war. This tug of war used a special rope that could measure how much effort everyone was applying individually as well as collectively. The results showed that as individuals joined the team activity, the total effort was less than what they were capable of individually. Pairs tended to contribute about 93% of the sum of their personal capacity. Groups of three pulled 85% of their potential. By the time a group reached the size of eight people, people were contributing about 49% of their maximum strength. This is labelled social loafing, 
when we're hidden in a crowd, we sometimes don't give our all. A manager who could unlock the maximum effort that people could potentially apply could achieve breakout results. The correlation between engagement and performance is a fascination for obvious reasons. In an analysis of 50 global companies, consulting firm Towers Watson found that companies with low engagement scores had an average profit margin of just under 10%. But those firms with high engagement had a slightly higher profit margin of 14%. The superstar firms with the highest engagement scores had an average profit margin of 27%. So could higher engagement in the Liverpool squad be the reason why they perform so well? By Klopp extrovertly expressing interest in players, his employees, is he dragging up their engagement and connecting them to the cause? In the real world of work, measuring and building engagement is seriously big business. The biggest workplace survey in the world is conducted by Gallup, almost 2 million workers across more than 70 countries. Work units in the top quartile in employee engagement outperformed bottom quartile units by 10% on customer ratings, 17% on productivity, 20% in sales and 21% in profitability. Gallup make it clear that they think employee engagement can be shifted and largely reflects the actions of managers. Yeah, like Klopp. One of the challenges of this engagement industry is that once something is measured and the benefits of it are identified, it becomes a business KPI. Enter Goodhart's Law. Goodhart's Law is an adage named after British economist Charles Goodhart. Goodhart's Law says that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. A boss decides that when his team makes more calls, they generate more revenue. So he sets the goal to double the number of calls. Sure enough, the number of calls double, but business falls. Why? Because low quality, easy calls prioritise rather than the lengthier calls that end in business. Targeting engagement doesn't always achieve the right result. So back to Klopp. By his caring approach, it seems that he's forging a closer bond with his players. To consider how he does that, let's consider the next element in the Klopp approach. And that is being relentlessly inclusive. The first thing that defines the Klopp culture is that it's inclusive. And this approach goes a long way beyond the first team. When the manager first joined Borussia Dortmund, he told everyone he wanted to create a feeling of we. They were all part of it. When someone told him that some corporate customers had given up their VIP seats, he personally picked up the phone to see if they would reconsider. On joining Liverpool, Klopp made the point of learning the names of all 80 employees at Melwood, the club's training ground. He lined them all up in the dining hall and introduced them personally to the players. It proved remarkably powerful. The new arrival taking time to introduce the people he'd only just got to know himself. Everyone there should be henceforth on first name terms. It was a gesture that spoke to walls coming down. Klopp explained to the whole group they all had a responsibility to help each other to achieve their best. He told the team's social organisers they should expect social events to increase in frequency. Creating that sense of inclusivity, that sense of family, is critical to the Klopp approach. Sometimes when we're hatching business plans and models, we can forget we're not talking about metal hammers and metal nails. We're dealing with people with anxieties, emotions and feelings. Klopp, more than anything, excels at these soft skills. Talking about the boys connects sincerely with the players. Here's Virgil van Dijk after the Champions League final when he was asked about the impact of the manager. He's a fantastic manager, <clears throat> first and foremost. But he's a fantastic human being as well. And how he handles us as players obviously at the games but outside of the games as well 
it's outstanding. It's a pleasure to work with him, but also with the rest of the coaching staff. All the people that works at Melwood, you know, it's an it's amazing environment to be in. I'm very glad and, and very proud that he wanted me to play for this beautiful club. Klopp works hard to make the players feel valued. Seeing how Klopp talks and embraces his players brings to mind the extraordinarily successful coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr, in NBA basketball. He's a super cut of Kerr, talking on five or six different occasions to Steph Curry, the player whose game is reliant on confidence in his outrageously audacious long-range shooting. Listen to how Kerr's comments almost feel like neuro-linguistic programming. It's like he's trying to hypnotise Curry with supportive praise. I'm going to show you. That's your shooting totals. That's your plus-minus. All right, so it's not always tied together. You're doing great stuff out there. The tempo is so different when you're out there. Everything you generate for us is so positive. It shows up here, not always there, but it always shows up here. You're doing great. Carry on, my son. I would love to feel whatever the hell you're feeling right now, just once in my life. For me, like, if I went like five for six and made four threes, that was about the best I ever did. Love it. One of the things I love about you is you're like two for 11, no hesitation shooting a 60-footer. Nobody in the league does that. You have so much confidence in yourself. And within games like this, you turn it around like that. It's awesome. Amazing. Wish I had your confidence. Pop. To managers like Kerr and Klopp, this inclusivity feels natural and honest. It's possible to imagine that someone with less EQ might get this wrong. Klopp's inclusive humanity comes across time and time again. In the book Bring the Noise, former Dortmund press officer Josef Schneck recounts how he had mentioned in passing that his mother was soon to turn 90. Klopp replied, shouldn't I come and congratulate her? Sure enough, after asking when the date was coming near, he turned up on the day with some cake. As Schneck says, no one could believe that Jürgen Klopp was sitting amongst her friends. To him, it was the most natural thing, he says. It might be strange making a point of a manager being inclusive, but even though the job appears to be just a coach and a squad of 20 players, breaking down barriers is very much Klopp's way to build a rapport in the team. Let's make a contrast at this point. It's not the norm to have such a close bond in a team of football players. In fact, even the most successful manager of the last decade, Pep Guardiola, doesn't get close. It's hard on substance to criticise Pep Guardiola, but his former players often seem keen to unburden themselves of their reservations of his approach. Former Bayern player Bonfim Dante said, There are coaches that are world-class in terms of tactics, but on the human side of things, they aren't that good. Pep Guardiola doesn't talk with players, so you never know what is going on. Zlatan Ibrahimovic had a famous falling out with Guardiola, and he said, after a few months, the philosopher didn't speak to me anymore. Another Barcelona player, Samuel Eto'o, said, he didn't have the courage to tell me things to my face. Bayern player Frank Ribéry made what many regarded as a public dig at Guardiola after the Catalan left the club. Referring to the new manager, Carlo Ancelotti, he said, the Italian knows how to treat his player. He went on to say Ancelotti was, quote, a gift for Bayern and with him I feel confident again. Former Bayern player Medhi Benatia describes Guardiola as distant from the players he manages. Alexander Hlepp went one further saying, I don't think Guardiola was the best coach in the world. He trained the best team with the best players. In contrast with his flow of criticism, Klopp's talk about his boys feels very different. Joseph Sneck, press officer of Dortmund, said Klopp told him a coach who doesn't love his players can't be a good coach. 
The work culture writer Tony Schwartz says that the objective of bosses should be to envisage themselves as chief energy officers, and that means transferring inclusive energy of the sort that Klopp uses. Schwartz quotes his own research. Of engaged employees, he claims that 74% of them felt their bosses had a sincere interest in their well-being. Quote, while only a minuscule 18% of disengaged employees felt their managers genuinely cared about their well-being. This inclusive family-style atmosphere is something that Wharton psychologist Sigal Barsaid calls companionate love. She says that often leaders think that we shouldn't express emotions at work, but in fact, this bond seems to unlock a better performance in workers. Here, Professor Barsaid describes her research looking at the impact of this companionate love amongst workers in a care home. And what we found was that on units that employees had a greater culture of companionate love, that companionate love led to many, many different things in the workplace. For example, it led to better employee engagement. People had more teamwork. They were more satisfied. It also led to less employee withdrawal. People were not burnt out as much, which in this organization mattered a lot, and literally absenteeism was less. Um, it also led to better patient outcomes. Watching Klopp's interactions with his team, it would be easy to say that the secret is his charisma, but it's not that. As we've said before, he values entertainment and he's no fan of hierarchy. He's certainly entertaining, but he uses that skill to make people feel closer to him. And it certainly works. Here's one post-match press conference. Sometimes I would really like to change my personality, but I can't forget this fucking lose against um, Crystal Palace. <laughs> <laughs> if, um, if, we, if, we, if, we, if we had won this, I would say it was my own okay. Yeah. One of Klopp's classmates at school, Harmut Rath, reported that, quote, Jürgen was a genius in telling jokes. He made everyone in class laugh. He was the life and soul of the classroom. As an extrovert, Klopp tries to communicate that everyone needs to play a part in creating a team dynamic. All what we do in life, how I understand, is about relationship. Because otherwise you live in a forest alone, on a mountain alone, and if you only want to be alone and want to be responsible for exactly the things you do and no responsibility for anything else, you have to live alone. Otherwise, always when you enter a room, you, you have a little bit of responsibility at least for the mood in the room. As a football team, we have to, we have to work really close together. Each player knows each name of each person who works at Melbourne. It's not me to create an atmosphere. Each person in a room, each person is responsible for that, and a football team uh, especially. It worked out well. We all win for each other, meanwhile. We, we do it for our, for Carol and Caroline. We do it because we know how important it is to them, and um, that makes it just more valuable, more worthy. It's just, it feels different. If you have a bigger group to do it for, the better it feels for yourself. Klopp there mentioned Karen and Caroline, part of the staff at the Melwood training ground, part of that lineup in the dining hall. Klopp has a philosophy of entertainment. In interviews, he clearly empathises that people who go and watch games are looking for colour in their lives. The game should be a release of passion. Christian Heidel, the former sporting director at Mainz, who elevated Klopp from defender to manager in 2001, reported that Klopp's secret weapon was always his passion. Quote, 
I've known Jürgen for 30 years and he's remained the same. He's always authentic. Heidel goes on, quote, Of course he's learned. In Bundesliga 2, he seemed to be sent to the stands by referees every four weeks. He had often no control over his emotions. Now he has them mostly under control. Mike Gordon, president of the Fenway Group, owners of Liverpool, said, quote, It wasn't about, boy, this guy's really charming. Very quickly, what came across was the breadth of talent. Not just the personal side, but the level of intelligence. The kind of analytical thinking, the logic, the clarity, the honesty. His ability to communicate so effectively, even though English wasn't his first language. So inclusivity is cop secret and entertainment helps him deliver it. The obsession of bringing everyone close has led to some missteps. Early in his reign, Klopp was annoyed that fans were leaving the game early. He felt it was a sign that the crowd wasn't living up to their part of the deal. Here's Damien Hughes again. Very early on in his career, he made criticism of the Liverpool fans because he felt that they left early during games when it wasn't going well. He felt the fans got on the back of the players and started to complain. And if they were getting beat, say, 2-0 with 10 minutes to go, he noticed that the stadium would empty. And he made criticism of them and said, I want to create an environment where our fans are constantly encouraging and supporting our players. And even when we're not winning, they stay right till the end because they believe there's a chance we could do something different. He'd gone out and almost laid down his blueprint and told people, this is what I won. And I think that Barcelona game was a great example. This led to some awkward moments. Klopp's first home defeat had come when Scott Dan had put Crystal Palace 2-1 up eight minutes from time. The goal had prompted home fans to flock for the exits. Eight, 82 minutes, the goal. I saw many people leaving the stadium. On the turnaround, want to be a second alone, and then I watched my team. I felt pretty alone in this moment. Yeah. And um, so that's, of course, we decide when it's over. Okay, of course the whistle decides. But between 82 <coughs> and 94, you, you can make eight goals if you want. Only have to, to work for it. To try and change this leaving mentality, Klopp worked hard. After one game, Klopp took the team out to take a bow and salute the cop at the end of a 2-2 draw with West Brom. It was intended as a thank you to those who stayed. Some saw it as revelling in taking a point from the baggies. But for good or bad, inclusiveness seems to have had a massive impact on Klopp's culture at Liverpool. In 2018, Klopp spoke to legendary sports journalist Donald McRae. Klopp mentioned a secret unfulfilled desire to be a doctor. I have this helping syndrome, Klopp told McRae. I really care about people. I feel responsible for pretty much everything. The inclusivity of Liverpool FC is the result. An article by the journalist Melissa Reedy, who specialises in following Liverpool, in October 2018, reported that the culture of closeness had never felt better. She said, A few of Liverpool's longest-serving employees have commented that the culture of closeness and excellence fostered under Klopp has never been stronger in the modern era. Here's Jordan Henderson on the pitch in Madrid. What I was saying was the manager inspires that kind of feeling and that emotion, which is an, an, a, a very special gift. Without the manager, this is impossible. What he's done since he's come to this football club is unbelievable. Not only the players that he's brought in to make the squad stronger, the players that were already here, he's made better. And such a togetherness in the group, and he's created a special dressing room. So, yeah, all the praise, everything goes to the manager. This brings us on to the final part of the COP formula. We've looked at data, a clear plan, inclusivity, and finally, psychological safety. Psychological safety. Here's Damien Hughes, Professor of Organisational Psychology at Alliance Business School in Manchester and author of The Barcelona Way. 
I think one of the things he is really good at doing is creating this sense of psychological safety. The, the researcher, Amy Edmondson, was the one that first coined this. She originally saw it in research in, in hospitals in America that said the best hospitals were often the ones that had the highest recorded near-miss or incidence rates, which on the surface, that sounds incongruent. And when she looked at it, said, when people feel psychologically safe enough to admit a mistake without the repercussions of being punished for doing so, that's where the organisation gets smarter a lot faster. And I think if you see Klopp, I often think that's a really telling, understated virtue of his, that he makes great store by players trying and having a go. So there doesn't appear to be much censure for players that maybe make a mistake or cock up as long as they've done it with the right intent. So that performance when they beat Barcelona 4-0 at Anfield, I thought the seeds of that were sown the week before when they'd been beaten 3-0 and he refused to criticise his own players for it. He just, you know, he said that Barcelona were supermen. So he praised the opposition rather than denigrated his own players in, in the Camp Nou. So the players, when they came back the week after, had that sense of safety that their manager had their back. So they allowed them to take more risks. So what is psychological safety? The phrase was coined in 1990 by William Kahn. Psychological safety is a shared belief that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. It's characterised by a mutual honesty. Honesty of the team with the boss and the boss with the team. Damien Hughes works with teams across the Premiership, international rugby and more. He explains what the absence of safety might look like. I'll give you an example that when I work with teams, say like a player makes a mistake, and just say it's a really evident mistake, say in rugby where a player might drop a ball or something like that that, that they'd expect to have caught quite easily. My interest in that isn't the player that makes the technical mistake, because often it'll be something that can be easily uh, fixed. My interest is in the collateral impact of what happens around that player. So what happens with his teammates? If his teammates start berating him for making that mistake, you remove that sense of safety. If his teammates ignore the mistake and walk away as if to go, well, it's not my problem, you remove that sense of safety. But if a player goes towards the player and just acknowledges it and almost don't need to give them group hugs or tell them they're amazing, but just go to them and almost give them some sense of connection to let them know that I'm with you, I still trust in you, you're safe with me, you're not going to get hammered. That's how it starts to happen gradually, where players then can feel the need that they can cock up, they can make a mistake, they can take a risk without worrying that they're going to be censured. So there was some fascinating research done a few years ago on penalty shootouts. And what they found is that when a player misses in a penalty shootout competition, depending on how the player that's missed is treated, determines what happens next. If a player misses and then one of his teammates goes towards him and brings him back into the group, so puts his arm around him, lets him know that he's still a member of the team, he's valued, and almost gives him that shelter of bringing him back into the team, that's a really good example of psychological safety is reinforced to everybody else that's watching. He can make a mistake without worrying that I'll be ostracised from the group for doing it. So how does Klopp build this safety? He urges his team to take chances. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain talked to the Telegraph after a return from a long-term injury. Quote, 
He would say, I don't watch you shooting all week in training to try and be Iniesta and thread a pass. He would scream at me, shoot, it goes in or it misses. But in his head, it's, so what? Mo Salah and Sadio Mane are running in. Klopp himself went on to explain this approach. This is very important. What we need to create is where they understand completely that the only criticism they need to take is mine. Not because I'm the only one that knows anything, but because I'm the only one they have to pay attention to. I'm the only one giving them the direction together with our backroom staff and support team. So it makes no sense to trust what people who are not involved in the process think. One of the ways that this safety is reinforced is the way that mistakes are dealt with. Aside from this year's Champions League final, Liverpool, of course, were also the defeated finalists in 2018. A 3-1 loss to Madrid in Kiev. The story of that game was of the two-goal deficit being down to two calamitous goalkeeping errors by Loris Karius. The first where Karius absentmindedly rolled the ball into the path of the right foot of Karim Benzema. Repeated viewing doesn't overcome the sense of WTF. But here's Klopp, minutes after that defeat, unwilling to blame the keeper. <laughs> Yeah, what can I say? Uh, uh, I think uh, Loris knows it. Yeah, everybody knows it. That's it. That's it. Uh, it's a shame in a, in a game like this, and after a season like this, um, I really feel for him. Fantastic boy, first one. Yeah, and of course the second one. I think the second one is because of the first one. No, nobody in a game like this. You, it's quite uh, sort of really difficult to get rid of the bad thoughts you have in your mind and uh, and, and see the other one and. Uh, in between, yeah, the bail, bicycle kick, unbelievable. Yeah. So how is that? Um, we were in the game. We did what we we did what we could. The boys tried everything, um, and it was not the best script for us tonight. Of course, after the drama, Carrier saw the data of Ian Graham suggest he should be displaced by a record signing of the Brazilian keeper Alisson, and he was sent on a two-year loan to a team in Turkey. Here's Damien Hughes again. It was interesting that, that, that Klopp never censured him publicly. Now, I'm sure it must have done privately because he made two catastrophic errors that meant that Real Madrid went on to win the game. Now, interestingly, Klopp replaced that goalkeeper at the end of that season. But I still think the way he treated him was respectful and done with safety. So he, he, he never publicly criticised him for it. He said that any of us could have made that mistake. And then he allowed the player to leave with dignity and go to get a first team place in a team in Turkey, I think it was. So the guy was almost removed from the spotlight, but done so with a real respect and courtesy for him as a professional. And then he, he, it was a significant upgrade of who he replaced him with. So I think there was a couple of things there that one, his teammates could see that the guy that had made the mistake wasn't publicly humiliated and he was still treated with courtesy as a human being. But then when he did replace him, it wasn't that he was replacing like for like. He plugged the significant, uh, or he made the significant improvement to that, which again just creates that sense of, there's a sense of fairness there in terms of people are going to be treated fairly in that environment. This psychological safety is reliant on honest and candid discussion. One Dortmund player who Klopp was trying to woo reported that unlike other managers, Klopp didn't overpromise. He didn't make empty promises. Asking what the player expected from Dortmund, the player said to play as much as possible. The manager replied, that's not possible. I can't promise you'll play that often, but you'll learn an incredible amount. Psychological safety is about letting players know they won't be blamed for giving everything they've got. 
That's again something you cannot do that in the in the four days between two games. You have to you have to create this atmosphere or long before that. So the boys know that they can make mistakes. That's uh, football is a mistake game. So you without mistakes you cannot play it. You have to, the, the only thing is always the reaction in the game already. You lose the ball, try to win it back. You concede a goal, try to score one, and that's all. That's constantly our job. So we are really used to that. The boys are used to that since they are five years old. They had not. They came to Liverpool, which means they did a few things really right in their career. Um, but they had not only sunny days. So there were a lot of um, clouds around um, when they had problems, when when they were younger, um, bad matches and all that stuff. So we are used to that. But it's uh, the atmosphere is, we if we make a mistake, we all try. To sort it. That spirit of taking chances often takes people's breath away. In the semi-final second leg at Anfield, viewers witnessed a moment of audacity that bears up to hundreds of repeat viewings. On winning a corner, local player Alexander Trent Arnold stepped up to take the kick. As is often the case with these things, he appears to have second thoughts and walks away to give way to another player. He steps away from the flag, but within a blink of an eye, the fullback is back in the corner, striking the ball through a crowd of inattentive Barcelona players. Even the... Take it quickly. Oh, wonderful thinking, Origi. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant from Liverpool. And for Barcelona, chaotic, catastrophic. And it's four. And they do lead now, not just on the night, but on aggregate. But have a look here. Even the player it was aimed at, Origi, seemed to be caught off guard. But it didn't stop Origi skillfully guiding it home to make the score a mesmerising 4-0 on the night. We all know that you need luck in this situation or a genius moment like Trent Alexander-Arnold. Wow. I saw the ball flying in the net and had no clue who took the corner and who scored because I, that was too quick for me. Um, now I saw it back and it's just incredible. Smart. Two players only connected... In this moment, it was enough. That was, oh my God, how, how, that's, yeah, genius. Of course, what managers often miss, either in football or elsewhere, is that if we want our teams to be creative, we can't punish them for mistakes. Klopp goes out of his way to show that no one will pay the price for making mistakes. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. I've been fascinated with looking into Perkbox. I think employee engagement is obviously a big focus for more and more firms. And Perkbox is one of the best ways for firms to try and show some recognition for a job well done. There are over 200 exclusive employee benefits on the Perkbox platform. And they cover things like reward and recognition. They cover incentives. There's even healthcare on there. All designed to improve the employee experience. Anyone who's looking to improve the experience of work for their team would certainly find some benefit there, improving motivation, productivity and staff retention. Find out more at perkbox.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jurgen Klopp has built something remarkable at Liverpool. He's built success founded on four critical elements. Data, a clear plan, inclusiveness and psychological safety. Few would deny him his success so far, but what's next? Here's Damien Hughes with a cautionary note. I think he's, he, what he did at Mainz, then at Dortmund, the, fit, the fourth off, I think they'll win the league this year because I think things seem to uh, peak for him in the third and fourth year. I think he starts to tail away in the fifth. And I, I wonder whether the intensity of his relationships starts to burn people out I think after that fifth year, whether you either need to replace your team or you have to go yourself. That's interesting because because managers like Jose Mourinho burn people very quickly, don't they? Yeah. He, sort of, he almost has a siege mentality that can initially be very motivating, that people can feel that they're sort of around a very urgent sense of purpose, but it seems to exhaust people pretty quickly. And, and you're sort of saying something... Yeah. Similar. Well, I think Guardiola identified something similar as well. So he, see, it's interesting what he's agreed to at City that he signed up for two years, whereas after he finished at Barcelona, he did four years and said that was too long. He felt that in his case, his style of football lends itself to a three-year window, and by the third year, he felt that people are exhausted of his intensity, and he's exhausted as well. Um, so when he went to Bayern Munich after Barcelona, he only did three years. And when he signed up at Manchester City, he originally signed for three years. He's now signed for two more. A lot of coaches do have a pattern of behaviour that they can spot and recognise how long it'll last for. Um, and I think Klopp, I think if you look at his two previous teams, that five-year window seems to be a pattern. Now, he might defy that and he might do it by either changing his style or he might replace enough players that he can start the cycle again. I wouldn't be surprised they'll win the league this year, but then it'll be next year that I think it'll be especially interesting to see what he does then. Do you think there's any relevance of that for for what I call real world, but the, you know, the sort of world of business, that you yeah, know, definitely. actually seeing things as almost election terms or four-year projects seems to have a... A, a good energy to it. Yeah, definitely. So Alex Ferguson used to talk about this, that he felt part of his success at Manchester United was because of the relative security that came for him, he was able to plan in four-year cycles. So he said he was able to make decisions that might have looked um, a little bit short-term in the second year, but he wasn't planning for then. He was planning for four years out. So he, say, for example, his decision to get rid of David Beckham or... 
uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy, two guys that were regarded as his best players at the time. People questioned, why on earth are you getting rid of them? But his point was, because in two years' time, so he, he could see talent that was coming through to replace them that would likely get frustrated. He could see signs of decline that would exacerbate over that period. So he could make a decision because he was constantly thinking of those four-year cycles. And I think in the business world, when, when we're targeted quarter to quarter, that can often drive short-termism that can be contradictory to longer-term success. Let's leave things with Klopp himself. I try everything to be as successful as possible. I live 100% for the boys, with the boys, what we do for the club and all that stuff. And I think that's leadership in the first case. As, as a leader, you cannot be the, the, the last who comes in and the first who goes out. That's how it is. You have, don't have to be always the first coming in or the last going out. It's um, not like this, but you have to be an example as well. That's how it is. You have enough confidence and that's very important for a leader because confidence, if I would expect from myself that I know everything and I'm the best in everything, I couldn't have confidence, but I don't expect, expect that. I, I know I'm good in a couple of things, really good in a few things, and um, that's enough. What I can do, my confidence is big enough that I can really let people grow next to me. So Jurgen Klopp is an inspiration to many of us. Combination of data, a clear plan, inclusiveness and psychological safety has created something remarkably special. I've been Bruce Daisley. Today's episode was written and produced by me. All errors are entirely mine. Thank you to Damien Hughes and today's guests. For a full list of links, go to the show notes of this episode or the website eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get more of these episodes. Always welcome your feedback. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.